0: This article that I was reading, it was saying that in communist Russia, they would get like the artists and things to write stuff that supported their regime. But then, mm-hmm. if you had to look at the prototype of an artist, is to tell their story, their side of things. And, and that's like a very fine line between your morals as a writer, as a poet, and, and things.
1: Yeah. Yeah and you 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 have touched on something that is one of the most controversial things that's discussed one of the most controversial truths the truth that you just nailed very well is one of the most controversial truths discussed among artists in every generation and i think it's 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 good and just and 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 right to to kind of look at this you know from both perspectives but bottom line as artists when we stand for what when we stand for justice as artists then we are standing for what is eternal in this world mm. and justice justice and love are the are two of the most beautiful eternal truths about this world and when we're like when i'm writing paco and maria right now it's this great love story well, Paco and Maria is a is a great love story, and it's completely inspired work. It's not based on a true story like many of like a lot of my other books, but but Paco and Maria, the core of it is justice and love ju- love and justice intertwined, right? And and without giving away the story, at the end of the day, Paco makes the decision he does, and it's just as much Maria's decision as as his, because of the fact that he is the great, great grandson of a famous Mexican guerrilla fighter who who rode with Zapata. And this is the thing about uh, La Gente de Mexico, uh, about about Mexican folks that a lot of Americans don't understand. The Mexicans for all the troubles they're they are having, which are not entirely of, of, their, of their own fault at all, but there's a deep sense of pride in justice in Mexico that's still alive today. And they know what Zapata stood for. They know what Zapata fought for to end poverty in Mexico. And there certainly were plenty of Mexican poets and artists and musicians during the revolution who rode with Zapata for that reason. You know, they they took their convictions and they made them real. And looking at looking at the dynamics of what you're talking about with the, the Soviet Union, for example, communists, when it was under communism. Yeah. Uh, one of the most fast, yeah, one of the most fascinating stories I have is a good friend of mine who's passed on, Joseph Brodsky. Brodsky received the Nobel Prize for Literature for his poetry. Incredible poet. Just, you know, Brodsky's work will live forever. Brodsky remains very popular poet uh, in, in Europe and Asia and, and, and so on. Well, Brodsky went to the gulag not because he wrote against communism but because he simply refused to write in favor of it. And he refused to join the Soviet Writers' Union, which was demanded of, Soviet po- of, of writers and poets in the Soviet Union uh, for so many years. And Brodsky said, no, I, I write love poetry. That's my core. And I also write other poetry, but I'm not going to write a poem in favor of the Soviet Union, the regime, yeah. or any regime. You know. And so was he apolitical? In a sense, he was, but he knew what he was doing. He was right. standing for every poet and every artist who is, who is simply saying to the world, look at the beauty in the world for Brodsky he wrote these incredible love poems you know look at so Brodsky was like this I'm writing another poem for a beautiful woman and that's why I'm on this earth that is my mission in life that's why I exist that's it Hmm. and that is as you know as an artist that's at the very core of every artist you know that's at the very core of every artist so even strangely enough, even when an artist uh, is seemingly apolitical, there can be something profoundly political in in the way it, it all goes down and and what happened was at his trial uh, the, the KGB hated Brodsky and they they finally brought these trumped up charges against him in a kangaroo court uh, in moscow they he was the judge, asked him at the end of the trial, so, Joseph Brodsky, who made you poet? I say, Soviet Union made you a poet. Who made you a poet? And Brodsky famously replied, God made me a poet. Who made you a judge? <laughs> yeah, so, you know, and Joe was, Joe was an incredible cat. It was such an honor. To, to sit with him and talk about poetry. He invited me into his office at the Library of Congress. I was living in Washington, D.C. This was after I was out of the Marines. And for three years, I was researching researching a book on a book of nonfiction on Southeast Asia. And I was working as a mailroom, mailroom clerk at a law firm. It's the only job I could get. Nobody would hire me as a paralegal. So that turned out to be a blessing. And a friend of a friend said, hey, you know, Brodsky wants to meet you. He, he's heard about this, this Marine poet. I said, I said, hey, I'm out of the Marines. I'm a poet. I'm a poet who's a Marine veteran. He said, yeah, yeah, but he knows about what you did in Spain. And, and at that time, it was like only eight or nine years after Barcelona for me, you know, I was 29, 30. And I said, well, hell, I'll have a cup of coffee with him. He says, he says you you go over to the Library of Congress and, and uh, you know, have lunch. I said, well, cool. So I went to. So you were aware Lundry. of who
0: he was, and you have you knew about his work and stuff before this.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'd seen him at a reading in Washington D.C. while I was on active duty. Okay. In the yeah yeah in uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was in the winter of '87. But but I'd seen him at a reading. You know, I'd, I'd seen him give read his work. Brodsky was an incredible cat, Nick. He and women loved him. And he was this, he was this little dude. He was about like, you know, five, seven or so, built like a fire plug, little heavy in the gut, smoked like a chimney, <laughs> uh, drank like a fish. <laughs> and and he's he's there, he's got he's got red wine, a huge, huge glass of red wine on this, on this uh DS, on this, on this uh, uh, on this table. And and he's smoking as he's reading poetry. And these three women who were a little off to the left and to the side and they were they were all talking whispering to each other as he as he read his poetry and they were stunning they they i mean they were like they were they looked like models and they were just stone cold gorgeous and so i thought he must know these women i was <laughs> right he finished the reading there was q a after the reading and then he said, "Thank you so much. I will be happy to sign any copies that, because that was part of it. It was announced. If you have a, a copy of any of his books, bring them. You know, book signing too. And and so as he's signing copies, and and quite fortunately, he signed my copy. Um, these three gorgeous stone cold foxes are standing right." behind him and and talking to him in Russian. And so he would sign a copy and then he would say something witty in Russian like, oh yes, you know, don't change your hair. I love you. <laughs> you know, whatever. And yeah. you know, or I love love your earrings. Yeah, you're back. you bet. Know, <laughs> and so he finished the book signing and I was talking to some people and then he walked out with two of those two one woman on each arm and and the third one was just a little off to the left and they're all smiling and joking and laughing brodsky walked into that poetry reading before they showed up and as i as i later found out from him he didn't know them before the reading <laughs> they they, they uh, you know they came there they came there for joseph brodsky you know and he he was happy to leave with them yeah, it
0: was wow. wild. Yeah. <laughs> so what are the common themes that you find that you explore in your work?
1: Uh, definitely justice and love. To a certain degree, betrayal. Probably because I've been betrayed, at, at, especially at war. Uh, I'm Could really you speak a bit about that, about
0: that, if you mind?
1: Yeah, yeah, the... the uh, There was a Judas in the patrol behind Burmese army lines, the long patrol, which the book I wrote, but there was a Judas in that patrol. And I sensed that he was a Judas from the moment I met him, because this guy was talking all kinds of smack about, I am protected and I am this, and I know this general in the Thai army and so on. But bottom line, he did not look like a Pacquiao, kill tribesman in the first place. The Pacquiao, who are also known as the Karen, have been fighting a guerrilla war forever since 1947 against the Burmese government, which in all that time has been a dictatorship. And and their their official tribal name, by the way, is In On the internet, if you put in the Karen, K-A-R-E-N, that's the hill tribe name that you'll find them under, but that's a name that the Thais gave them, right? Because the Thais can't speak hill tribe, right? Where, where the do they come from? They, they originally come from uh, what is today Tibet and okay. a little north of Tibet in Western China. Yeah, 3,000 years ago, a little over 3,000 years ago, they made the, the journey from what is today Tibet and a and little north of Tibet, Western China. They made the journey from Western China to Northeastern Burma and Northern Thailand, right? There's about a million Pekingong, in northern Thailand, right. So this guy, he was then. I, I was there to carry out the deep reconnaissance and to be behind Burmese army lines, including on ambushes and raids against the Burmese army for three months. That was the deal. That was the agreement in advance with the Karen National Liberation Army, the KANLA, the armed wing of the Karen National Union, the KNU. So this guy was talking to oh, I've been the KNU and I have a friend in the KNU and I'm thinking, you don't brag in guerrilla war or any other combat. You don't brag about who you know and what position you are in before a mission. That's that's completely wrong. You know that's just wrong, and it's phony. And I was right. the The, the guy was no doubt he was no doubt the source of the betrayal. Before we went into the bush, before we crossed the mui River into the Triple Canopy Jungle in, in Burma, uh, he was he was bragging about this. He said, there's a Burmese general I know that will protect me if we're captured. And right there, I thought, this guy is dirty. You know? And within 24 hours, our radio intercept specialist, we had two CANLA, intel analysts, soldiers who were intelligence specialists on the mission. Everybody else was handpicked for their reconnaissance skills and their ability to survive deep behind Burmese army lines. I was 42 at the time. And, uh, and this was uh, July the July the, there's a, July the 9th if I'm not mistaken. It was, it was early July. I've got the the, the exact dates are in the book, of course, 2002. Did you have and, like a
0: diary or something that you kept with you to record all of the stuff? Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: I, I, I wrote everything down by hand in my diary. And then once I once I survived, I got back across the river, thanks to the miracle of the old man on the mountain. Um, I immediately contacted the senior editor at at Asia books, a guy named Richard Baker. Richard is a legend in Thailand. He's an incredible editor. He's, he's a very affable British cat. Uh, He spent a lot of time in London. Um, He's got a lot of friends in Liverpool and around the world. Um, But I I called Richard. I said, Richard, it it was nine days, not 90 days. And he said, mate, you're alive. I said, yeah. But I, I promised you I would be behind Burmese Army lines for 90 days. It, it turned out to be nine days. There was a traitor on the patrol, and I'm by the grace of God, I'm alive. And it was 250 clicks, 150 miles of wet, tired, and hungry, and fighting to stay alive. Fighting to not get killed by two Burmese Army battalions. Burmese Army sent two battalions to kill me. That's 540 total Burmese Army soldiers and commanders.
0: And what I happened to that? them?
1: What happened to them? Yeah. What happened to them? They 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 went back into the they went back into the uh Karen state and pissed in their beer and pounded the table and said, why, why didn't we kill Mike Tucker? We couldn't get it done. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we had 30 Karen guerrilla fighters and two commanders in that 30, a reconnaissance platoon commander and a lieutenant colonel from the Cannes LA, who was the advisor. And me, that's 31. We had two RPGs, four M79s, grenade launchers, and the rest were various and sundry small arms. I was carrying, I had an M1 carbine, M1, US Army M1 carbine from World War II that had been left there by, by uh, Army uh, Special Operations in Burma in 1943. Um, so uh, the, the main, number one priority on a deep reconnaissance, which is what we were on and is that, you absolutely never engage the enemy because once you do, all of your stealth is gone. Yeah. And when you're and when you lose when you lose stealth in any kind of combat, any kind of war, including counterterrorism especially, when you lose stealth, you're done. Your enemy has a huge advantage, and you're gonna you're gonna be dead soon. So there was one point where I wanted to ambush. A ninety-man element of one of those battalions, because our sources in, in the hills told us, "Hey, they're they're about one hour from you guys, and they're closing. You know, they've got a bead on us. They're coming." And meanwhile, we were up near a river, deep in the jungle, and I wanted to draw them in and then ambush them from about three different three different it's it's called a half moon ambush, right, like that, and get and bring them into that river, and then. T- turn our guns on them from that point is when you've got your enemy with his back to the river, he's done. That's exactly what you want. You want your enemy with his back to the river. And that river was a very fast flowing deep river. They would not have been able to run, run, run across it and escape. But the reconnaissance platoon commander agreed with me. The lieutenant colonel did not. And he had the say. So I shut up and let him do his thing. And at that moment, the the entire patrol, and that was the second day of the patrol. At that moment, the the patrol turned into an escape and evasion. And I knew I'm not gonna be behind Burmese army lines for 90 days. I'll be lucky if I get out of here with my life. It was later on that day that we got the second radio intercept that confirmed that there was another Burmese army battalion as a blocking force, blocking our way west. And there was no way we would be able to get to a larger guerrilla base camp, which was just a thatch huts and and bamboo. And it was up on the top of a mountain. But there was no way we're going to be able to get there. There was no way we could make that rendezvous because they had it blocked off. So they knew our routes of patrol. And the only way the Burmese army could have gotten the routes of patrol is from somebody on that mission. And I didn't know the routes of patrol. More to the point, I'd killed the Burmese army in 92. The the consensus among four of us, and we we did not raise this to the reconnaissance platoon commander or to the lieutenant colonel, but the consensus was we're going to find a way to survive. And this guy, you know, after you get across the river, Mike, this guy is going to be handled by the National Union, but he will, you know, he will never be on another patrol with us. He'll never be attached to the Korean National Liberation Army again. He's a political operative. He's he might be a double agent for the Burmese dictatorship, but he's definitely dirty. Yeah. Only if we, you know, and and I said, guys, absolutely. But remember this, and this is where for whom the bell tolls saved my life, because for whom the bell tolls has that classic theme of betrayal in it, and how to actually deal with. A traitor in the mist, who was Pablo, in, in, in from the bell tolls. Um, Robert Jordan knows early that Pablo is dirty. He knows that Pablo can't really be trusted, and is he a straight-up traitor? No, but he's not. He's not for the mission. You know, and as it as it turns out, Pablo does everything he can to stop blowing the bridge, the mission, from happening. Right. So Pablo is reflective of people in war in any generation just don't have the backbone to see it through, mm. right? And and I and and I was that was going through my mind very much on the long patrol. That was I I, I never forget. to think about Hemingway. Think about For whom the bell tolls. This is exactly the situation you're in. But this is Burma, and this is the Karen National Liberation Army. And these guys don't know you, but they know you enough to trust you. And you have to build on that. And at the very same time, I thought Robert Jordan, I mean, Hemingway's character in from the Bell's the tragic hero from, from the Bell's Robert Jordan did not kill Pablo when he had the chance because he knew that if he did that, all of those guerrilla fighters would turn against him. Right? Why? Because he's a coroner. Right? Mm. And, yeah. and he's this guy, this 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 uh, experienced spy from the Spanish Republic, who's come in out of nowhere to blow this bridge. The attitude of those guerrilla fighters and from Beltoz early before he earns their trust, the attitude is, "What are you doing here? This is our fight. You know, you're just this American. You're this foreigner who's come in to." To, to save the day for Spain, da, da, da. okay. So that was definitely on my mind, and that and that definitely, like I say, for whom the bell tolls, saved my life behind uh, Burmese army lines.
0: Would you experience stuff like that, like from other people, like experience a sort of tension, or you could like notice that they had like something like that feeling that you just just described. Of you are American and you just hear coming to tell a story, would you see that day to day, or was that like something that would play on your mind?
1: Only on the only on the first day, and on the first day, mostly it was night. Actually, we we crossed the river with, and it was pouring down monsoon rain, mud up to our knees in places. We low crawled through a cornfield for 200 meters. It was definitely the most grueling mission I'd ever done, and ever any anything I'd ever done, right? But on that first day, I could I could feel the standoffishness, and and you have to read people, you know, and I could I could read it in their eyes, and so I so I got real quiet, you know. I just I just stayed on the patrol, carried my gear, took care of business, and then we were on Dead Man's Trail, which is way up in triple canopy bush up in the mountains in the Kern State. Dead Man's Trail, about five miles of of mountain trail. Where on each side there's a ravine, and the trail is about like six feet wide, and it's muddy, and there's rocks, and there's jungle, and there's stumps of bamboo, and there's bamboo groves. And if you if you slip either way on Dead Man's Trail, you're dead man. Mm. You're you're gonna you're gonna fall over three hundred feet to rocks and boulders and, and on on each side of the ravine. So coming off Dead Man's Trail. We took a two-hour break, and and that was basically the routine we had for the rest of the patrol. We it would it would be patrolling, patrolling, patrolling. I had my M1 carbine from World War One, and and rounds and grenades, um, and then you know two-hour break, two-hour break once every 24 hours. We were moving, um, and that first night when we when we hit our jungle bivouac, none of us had us. Uh, none of us had sleeping bags, because the way that the current, the the la fight is, you just sleep right down on the ground, period. You just, you just drop and go to sleep. So you're not, you're not carrying that extra weight of a sleeping bag. Um, and pouring down rain, lying on my side, falling asleep. And about an hour and a half later, I woke up and I looked and there was a python. It was a good 15, 18 feet long, foot 18 foot long python, wrapped around a tree branch, about 20 feet away from me and between me and that python were three knla guerrilla fighters meanwhile there was a a guard with his back to me We, we had set out our our guards for the night there was a guard in the jungle about maybe five six feet behind me only he had his back to that tree so he never saw that python and neither did the other guards because they were looking out of the jungle for any Burmese army in, in any way right and and they were doing their they were doing their job they were they were, yeah. they were doing their duty as guards but lo and behold i crawled over and woke up those those three can, can LA between me and that python i said there's a fucking python in that tree it was and it was my voice was lower than this i mean really whispering. there's a fucking python in that tree we have to get everybody up the entire platoon, and get them out of here, because it's got it, it's got that uh, one eye closed, do not look at it, the rule, I would lived in Northern Thailand before, and I, and I fought in Burma before, in 92, leading hostage rescue missions, as a and the rule on pythons, and any snake, is you never look it in the eye, because if you do, there's a really good chance it will attack, right, and a, a python attacks you, especially one that big, you're done, no, yeah. unless, you, unless you shoot it. And so I said, don't look at it. Because I knew they almost looked at it because it's instinct. Oh, yeah. Where is it, right? And and uh, I said, don't look at it. We're going to wake everybody up. We're going to have to move. K-21, they had decided to bring a 16-year-old KNLA guerrilla fighter on the mission as a way to teach him about deep reconnaissance. He almost died. I saved his life. Um, which I can get into in a second, which was the, that was the third day of the mission, if I'm not mistaken. Um, But anyways, we all got up and we got out of there and I looked back, I glanced back as we're moving out of this glade and the python just woke up at that moment and opened his eyes and he didn't look at me he w- but he was looking where we had been, okay, right? and and he was not in that tree when we when we made that bivouac that hasty bivouac. He was not in that tree when we when we had gone to sleep. You know, you you can't read the mind of a python, <laughs> but you know as the saying goes, a snake is always a snake. So uh, later on, uh, a few days later, we were talking about it, and one of the uh, one of the Karen gorilla fighters said, "Man." I don't know what I would have done if I had seen that python myself. And he points to me, and says, But you're my Tucker. You're the hawk. I'm glad you're here. And meanwhile, as we as we move through the jungle, and nothing is darker than triple canopy bush at night in the monsoon season. I mean, just you can barely see the hand in front of your face in places. And then there were places where I couldn't see the hand in front of my face, right? On on that mission in trip triple canopy bush and burma and um i felt it from the platoon like yeah this guy he's looking out for us he made sure that python didn't eat us alive you know yeah. okay cool you know he's with us so the the rest of the, the rest of the mission was like that but then especially after i saved that that uh point man's life um he he went down hard on on a hill as as we were in the escape and evasion part of that whole mission. And we were jogging to, to, to gain as much ground as we could on both battalions of Burmese army that, that were hunting us to kill me. And we got their radio intercept, by the way, it was it kill the American, kill Mike Tucker, right? So they knew my name. Burmese army knew my name, you know, and they knew I was there, right? How did they get that information? Hey.
0: Did you find out how they knew about you afterwards?
1: No. My rule on a traitor is I never talk to him again. If I think somebody's a traitor, I make sure I made sure that the lieutenant colonel was aware of my analysis of that guy. I made sure that the, the, the lieutenant colonel, you know, when I before I crossed the river and on the other side of the river in Thailand, there was this Karen underground operative. The KNLA had and probably still has an underground in northern Thailand, right? Of sources and informants, and 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 uh, people that that help them, and and get get some of their people to safety and to sanctuary and so on. Um, but uh, I told him before I crossed the river, I have no doubt that the interpreter is a traitor, and he nodded his head and he said, he will have to deal with that at the KNU. And then he smiled and he said, "I'm not a politician. I'm a guerrilla commander. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see what happens." Yeah, that was the end of my uh, fight against the Burmese army. That was when I realized, hey, no matter how much I want the Karen National Liberation Army to win, no matter how much I want the oppression in the Karen State to end, no matter how much I want the Burmese dictatorship to be taken down, this is not really my fight. It's their fight. Of course, this was 2002. And as a counter-terrorist Ronin, as a freelance samurai against Al Qaeda, I had been tracking Al Qaeda since 94, 95, since the first World Trade Center bombing, February 26, 1993. That's when Al Qaeda really got my attention. I knew that they had been founded in 89 by Bin Laden. I knew Bin Laden's background. But when they when they tried to assault, when they assaulted, when Ramzi Youssef, al Qaeda terrorist assaulted, um, set off the suit, not a suicide bomb, set off the the bomb in a van under underneath the World Trade Center, killed a a number of Americans, but attacked the very heart of New York City. That's when they really got my attention. And then it was it was more clear to me than ever that, hey, it's it's July 2002 you completed this mission, you're you're writing The Long Patrol, the book's gonna get published, focus on taking down Al-Qaeda. Yeah, what do
0: you make out uh, of this whole um, U.S. pulling out of Afghanistan and the whole situation over there? What's your take on that?
1: Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that question. And uh, I was in Afghanistan in 2009. So my take on that is this, bottom line, Biden is absolutely right to end the war. Finally, an American president has the backbone and, and the balls to stand up to the Pentagon and to the CIA and say, Pentagon, you are wrong. Langley, CIA, you are wrong. We have to end it. It must end. And it's it's been a, a god-awful tragedy what has gone down. But looking at looking at Afghanistan say in the last um, in the last year right in the last year it was it was Trump and not Biden that negotiated directly with the Taliban and excluded the Afghan government from those negotiations okay it, it was it was Trump and not Biden that facilitated the release of 5,000. Afghan Taliban fighters from prison. It was Trump and not Biden that wanted to invite the Taliban to Camp David on the anniversary of 9/11. And it was Trump. Bottom line, Nick, it was Trump that refused to end the war. Trump went. Trump went into office saying, "I will end the war in Afghanistan. It's a total uh, mistake. It's it's costing." American lives, Afghan lives, it's it's a total waste of money, et cetera, et cetera. But he didn't do it. And then why why do you think that why do you think that is? Well, because I think that is because bottom line, Trump only cares about Trump. And he also Trump is such a profound narcissist that he doesn't listen, that he doesn't want to listen. He's not, he is willfully happy. He is very happy for the world to know that he does not read. You know, in 2016, America elected a willfully ignorant, functionally illiterate, total narcissist who only cares about three things Donald Trump's ego, Donald Trump's ego, and Donald Trump's money. That's his whole decision making process on anything. And that was his. So, his decision making process on Afghanistan in the last year was was classic Donald Trump. Well, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to pretend things are going to happen. And when things go south, I'll just blame all these different people because I've never, because I'm Donald J. Trump, and I've never had the courage to look in the mirror and say, hmm, maybe I'm my own worst enemy. All right. But one of the things that Trump did fact which is a real telling revelation into into how his mind works if it works at all is that he refused because he because he refused to concede the election because he refused to communicate at all not even hello not even pick up the cell phone and say hey what's going on yeah yeah i i I know yeah Uh, biden won the election right yeah and and you're the head of Biden's transition team, right, it's, it's November uh, 20th, uh, no, 2020. Yeah, I, I lost. So, uh, you know, bring in your transition team, let's have coffee in the White House, and let's do the intel handoff. What a lot of folks around the world don't know, well, a lot of folks in the United States don't know, is that the most important part of a transition in America from one president to the other is what's called the intel handoff. And the intel handoff, is where all the different gurus in American intelligence, the head of NSA, National Security Agency, the head of the CIA, the head of Defense Intelligence Agency, and DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, actually runs 80% of the counter-terrorists, the American counter-terrorists in the world. CIA, in terms of numbers, doesn't have many counter-terrorists compared to DIA. So the opinion, the advice, the analysis, of the director of DIA is incredibly important in a transition from one president to another, in a transition from one president's staff to the incoming staff also, right? Trump completely, willfully killed that. He decided I'm going to spend all my time raising money for the Republican Party and screaming that." The election was stolen from me when there was absolutely no proof whatsoever that the election was anything other than just and real and, and solid as, as all the, as, as all the federal judges have since nailed in all these lawsuits, you know, people are, people are losing their houses in the United States because they decided to sue, uh, a state election commission, uh, and, and say Joe Biden lost, and Trump won, and federal and, and then it, then after the state judge said, no, Biden won, Trump lost, go home. Well, after that, it, then it'd be, it, it, some of these people are taking those same lawsuits into a federal court, and the federal judges are saying the same thing. So Trump was obsessed with himself, with his ego, with his money, with the, with the fact that, oh, little Donnie didn't get what he wanted. He didn't get re-election. And meanwhile, what was happening in Afghanistan? Trump had already decided that there would be a date in, in May for the, the beginning of the end of uh, American involvement in, in Afghanistan. But he had four years to actually pull out American troops and he didn't. He had four years to set up a plan to evacuate all American diplomats and all American personnel and anyone who had worked for the United States in Afghanistan, he had four years to do that, but he didn't. And the reason he didn't is because he doesn't care. He only cares about his ego and his money. It, it's it's just god awful. Well, looking at looking at what's gone down, as a Marine veteran, I am damn sure sad, and 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 my heart goes out to the families of the marines that were killed in the the suicide bomb blast just a few days ago at the airport at Kabul airport and to all all the Americans that died there and but but I was but being in Afghanistan for a year in 2009 including on with attached to JSOC I was with the snipers who were attached to JSOC so officially formally I was not embedded with JSOC but the U.S. army snipers I was with were attached to JSOC. And they said, Mike Tucker's coming with us. You know, some of, the, some of the Joint Special Operations Command counterterrorists were U.S. Navy SEALs, right? And I'm still in contact with them, by the way. And, and they knew that the SEALs had trained me when I was a Marine on counterterrorism in 1987 at Coronado. So what I saw in Afghanistan really comes down to this. And this is why Biden is so right. And why in just uh, three days, there will finally be an end to the Afghanistan war. In March of 2009, in Wardak, in a small village, about a hundred miles, 110 miles, as the crow flies from Kabul, where Hamid Karzai was getting paid off by the CIA to, to be an idiot. <laughs> um, in a reconstruction aid meeting, there was a US Army Colonel, Colonel David Haight, a good man, former ranger commander, brilliant man, very very, very solid command. And there was an Afghan general, Afghan National Army General at the same meeting. There was a Yank spook, a a CIA spy from Lang. There was about three or four of Colonel David Haidt's staff. And then the Afghan general had his staff. And of course, at this meeting, there were tribal leaders from the nearby villages and the tribal leader of that village, the, the mayor, so to speak. Pesture. They were all pedestrian. Now, this is a village that I was told by U.S. Army intelligence, U.S. Army military intelligence, before that meeting. Hawk, this village is penetrated by Taliban. So be careful what you say. And I said, Look, I know. I already know. I've got a target on my back. I'm an American in Afghanistan. I'm gonna. I, my job is to seek the truth. So I'm gonna. I'm seeking it. Okay, guy. Okay. So we get in the meeting and the tea was poured and the talk was talked and the reconstruction aid was discussed and the millions and millions of dollars that the Americans were talking about bringing into Wardak to help build democracy and build schools and medical clinics. Did they actually do and that? To... Did they build I'm sorry? School... Did they build
0: schools uh, and hospitals and things?
1: Well, there, there is... There is a great insight into why the Americans failed. The Afghans, well, first the Afghans aren't Afghans. The word Afghan in itself is an illusion. You get into Afghanistan and you discover there is no unity whatsoever. There's not even unity among the Pashtu. And I've got a story for you from the time of Alexander the Great to illustrate that.
0: Yeah, I've heard of this, but, but you can say it.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and the the, the Turkmen have no unity with the Hazara. The Hazara tribe in Afghanistan has no unity with the Turkmen. The Turkmen and the Hazara have un- no unity with the Pashtu. The Pashtu are split themselves. And this was, the, they have no identity. So the Americans went in there thinking, we will, we will build up a standing army. And this standing army, the Afghan National Army, they will defend Afghanistan. And they will drive what remains of the Taliban out. It's January 2002. It's a plan. The generals are gonna make the plan. It's gonna work. Well, number one, it's a counter-terrorist fight in the first place. And it still is. And the number one rule in counterterrorism on a country-wide basis, like for example, looking at Mali right now, looking at Mozambique, okay? The number one rule is the same as in Central Asia, as in Afghanistan, as in Pakistan. And that is, you never send soldiers to hunt down and kill terrorists because terrorists can see a soldier coming from 10,000 miles away. He's in uniform. Yeah. Terrorists are by definition clandestine. In order to defeat a clandestine enemy, you have to fight clandestine. You have to fight with counter-terrorists, Ronin, like like I was, and spies I did more in Saudi Arabia with a pack of chewing gum and and I was I was making including the money I made in counterterrorism, I was clearing about forty thousand dollars a year. My cover was a university professor. I beat the Saudis I smoked them. I got my visa from the Saudi embassy in Washington DC <laughs> to teach literature and and ESL in in Saudi Arabia so I smoked them I Thank God, lashed up with the Bedouin, made really good friends with the Bedouin, because I knew something about the Bedouin before I came into Saudi Arabia in 2010. I knew that they are fierce against the jihadis, because they're in, the Bedouin are very country people, very down-to-earth, of the earth and their, inter- their interpretation of Islam, the Bedouin interpretation of Islam, is the five pillars of Islam are good. You know, help the orphans. You know, defend the poor, right? Pray with with real urgency for a better world, and and so on. And the 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 the, the attitude of the the Bedouin toward jihadis, toward Al Qaeda, toward Islamic State, et cetera, is they are wrong. You jihadis, you are wrong. You you go and murder people in the name of Allah. That is not what Allah wants, right? So. I, I did more, you know, and, and the money I made as, as a as a Ronan, the rule is the money you make on, on counterterrorism goes to orphanages and goes to charities. So I, I put 13 kids through junior high, high school and college in northern Thailand with the, oh. with the money from Saudi Arabia. And 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 I got the job done. But what did it take to get inside a bank and take down an Al Qaeda financier inside Saudi Arabia? And when you take down one Al-Qaeda financier, you save at least 10,000 lives, by the way. So what did it take? Well, it took me knowing Arabic. It took me having an ironclad cover, bulletproof cover. They never broke my cover. It took me making friends. It took me understanding and having a fairly deep understanding of Arab culture. And it took making friends with the janitor in the bank and promising him brother, you will get it in paper, signed in paper. Your two children, your little four-year-old daughter in 2010, your little seven-year-old son in 2010. Once they grow up, if they pass the entrance exam to any college or university in the world, the intelligence service that I work for, I can't tell you which intelligence service, but obviously it wasn't the Americans. Of the the Americans have no clandestine operations in Saudi Arabia and have never had them since 1947. That's one of the reasons why September 11 happened. Oh. The Americans quite literally don't know what they don't know. But the intelligence service I was working for, European Intelligence Service, said, OK, here's the deal. Offer him a deal. He, he does the deal. Then we have the way inside to the bank manager's well- computer." Why is
0: that that the Americans don't have intelligence in
1: operations? Yeah. yes, and intelligence in- inside Saudi Arabia? Yes. Yeah. Greed, my friend, greed. The Americans are way the heck too greedy. They're greedy in the first place. The Americans, the CIA especially, and remember in American foreign policy over the since 47, the CIA drives the train on American foreign policy, state And the Pentagon are just along for the ride. That's one of the big lessons from the Vietnam War. That's also a big lesson from Afghanistan, by by the way, right? And also Iran. Um, But look, you know, looking at looking at Saudi Arabia, the, the answer to your question is greed. American greed has blinded. You know, greed blinds, and pride destroys. And the Americans are greedy in deciding the Saudi oil is more important than saving American lives. And this is is stupid, and it is reckless, and it has to end. It has to end, or the United States is going to self-destruct. And not just for that reason, but for a number of other reasons. Do you think it will end?
0: Do you think it will end?
1: alive, i fighting to end it only if Americans decide to rise up and end it. You know, the apathy in American society toward American foreign policy is vast and deep and mitigates against ending the, um, the American umbilical cord to Saudi Arabia you know, and the decision making that's been made on counterterrorism, which is still being made today by the CIA. Concerning the Islamic State in Africa. Again, the Americans are failing. They're failing Africa, and the Americans are failing themselves. And they refuse to look in the mirror and say the CIA is wrong. And the Pentagon's strategy, the long war strategy on counterterrorism, is an absolute disaster and Iraq and Afghanistan are are the two biggest examples of it. But for example, Nick, why is it, and, and the, the corruption is so vast that the, and, and one of the reasons I'm so grateful to, to, to be on the air and to, to get my truth out is that the corruption is so vast that the American media, including CNN, refuses to put me on the air and say this Mm-hmm. Because they have too many friends that they went to Harvard and Yale with who are now high up in the American government. And they and CNN refuses to address the fact that the American strategy since September 2001 and before September 2001, before September 11, the American strategy is flat damn wrong. So looking at Mozambique, the Americans, including CNN, not just the American government, but CNN, MSNBC, and so on, refused to air the fact that the Islamic State in Mozambique captured, seized, and assaulted, and captured the international port of Moshe de Praia on August 12, 2020. Yes, Trump failed in counterterrorism on a grand scale. In 1996, British Secret Intelligence Service, MI6, put out the threat alert. And if you were a Ronin in counterterrorism, as I was at that time, right, then you got that threat alert. And the threat alert was this, Al-Qaeda and no other jihadi transnational terrorist army must ever capture, seize, and hold in international court. Because once they do, they will have the means to load up a container ship and turn it into a suicide bomb container ship into a floating suicide bomb that can be aimed at the Suez Canal, the Panama Canal and every international port in the world. Hmm. And so, so what happened August 12, 2020? The Islamic State did exactly what British Secret Intelligence Service, what MI6 had warned, in 96 must never happen. It's real, it happened, right? Now, it is a shallow water international port, which means you cannot bring that container ship right up to the docks, and they do have docks. But, as is proven by photos, and photos are online, seagoing ferries that can carry bulldozers and can carry cranes huge constru- construction cranes huge construction cranes have docked at that shallow water port which means freighters flat bottom freighters can dock at that international port and they can be loaded up with plastique with TNT with all kinds of explosives and if you sent today 10 freighters Right, each one about 60, 70 feet long, and they look from the air. They look from a satellite as it's a sea-going freighter, and it's got all these. It's got some crates on board, and no doubt it has some, uh, you know, papayas or bananas or you know, wheat uh, in the hold. And the manifest says, "Okay, anybody got the manifest? Yeah, yeah. We we track down the manifest. The manifest says it's carrying wheat, and it's going up the coast of East Africa." It's going to turn the, the horn of Africa, go up the Red Sea, cross through the Suez Canal, and then it's on its way to Italy. It's going to sell the wheat in Italy. It's going to offload the wheat in Italy. Okay, fine. It's not going to. It's not going to go all the way through the Suez Canal. It's going to be filled with plastic and TNT, and it's going to detonate along with the other those other freighters right in the Suez Canal and you saw what happened when one suicide when excuse me you saw what happened when one container ship gets stuck in the Suez canal imagine if that container ship had been filled with plastic and mm. explosives yeah well islamic the, the the problem with the americans is yes they're greedy and their greed blinds them but also the americans especially the cia and this is also true of the Pentagon to a certain extent, but it's very true of the CA, they lack imagination. They don't think like a terrorist in order to kill a terrorist, in order to stop a suicide bomb container ship from going off, from even being launched from that port. First, you have to think like a terrorist. And and the, the reality is, it is August the 28th. 2021, it's over a year since the Islamic State seized an international port. And at some point, the Islamic State is gonna decide, let's load up the fishing boats, which you can also use as floating suicide bombs. And let's attack, for instance, another port in East Africa or another part of Africa. And they can do it. Once a terrorist has the means and the ability to carry out an attack. The thing to remember, especially with jihadis, jihadis believe that they are absolutely doing the right thing when they strap on the suicide bomb vest, when they uh, turn a jet passenger plane into a weapon of mass destruction. Jihadis believe that they're absolutely doing the right thing. Again, big problem with the Americans, the Americans have this cultural idea Well, maybe that's not true, or maybe that is so, or there's two sides to every story, or there's 10 sides to every story. No, a jihadi is a jihadi, is a jihadi. He knows exactly what he's doing. He he will do what he sets out to do, unless you kill him first. And Moshinbo de Praia is a ticking time ball. And the American media and the international media, outside of you, (laughs) refuse to address that fact, right? But right now, the truth about Motion Boa de Praia, that it can be, the, that it is the base for launching suicide bomb container ships, suicide bomb freighters, and suicide bomb fishing boats. Well, now that truth is, is out to the world. And, and uh, it is a shallow water port, but it's an international port I've already talked about the different ways they can launch, that that Islamic State of Mozambique can launch uh, floating suicide bombs from that port. But also, they can park a container ship three miles offshore. That's where the deep water in the Indian Ocean off of Mozambique, off off of Moshe Bode starts. The deep water starts about three miles off. So they would park a container ship there. What does it look like from a satellite? CIA has all this sophisticated intelligence. The Americans spend billions and billions of dollars on cameras and satellites and analysts sitting behind computers, which are, which are useless. And that satellite looks down on that container ship three miles offshore and says, well, there's a container ship offshore. de Praia. Oh, I'm an analyst at Langley. Oh, well, I see a container ship. Uh, it's not a threat. There's a lot of container ships in the ocean, and it's not a threat. So they wouldn't even
0: be able to notice and identify it if they could?
1: Well, bec- because Islamic State controls the entire port of de Boydapraya, and all the land approaches, all the roads and road junctions come in into de Boydapraya, and all the sea approaches and the beaches surrounding de Boydapraya, that means that the Islamic State controls anything that is known about any boat at that port or offshore. Mm-hmm. So, the only way to the only way to stop the Islamic State from launching a suicide bomb container ship, even one from three miles offshore, is you have to liberate Monchimbo de Praia, and also that will end the beheading of Mozambican farmers who have been beheaded in Northern Mozambique, including in and near Moshe de Praia for refusing to swear allegiance to jihad. So the only way at this point to stop the threat of floating suicide bombs, suicide bomb container ships, suicide bomb fishing boats, and suicide bomb freighters from being launched from Motion motion border prior by the Islamic State is to liberate motion border prior, put a blockade in by the U.S. Navy, for instance, raid with at least one full regiment, the Marine Raider Regiment, which I've already called for on public record, and, and also with, say, at least 100 Delta IV snipers, 100 U.S. Navy SEAL snipers. And you have to work the political end at the same time. So but when you called West, for this,
0: uh, what was the reaction? Did they acknowledge it?
1: The the reaction of the Americans, including the American media, was not even to acknowledge it. The reaction of strategic, oh Lord, I'm I'm so I'm sorry, strategic review, strategic review in Jakarta. Now this is interesting. In Jakarta, Indonesia, where they are well aware of the threat of Al-Qaeda, Jem Islamiyah, Islamic State, and other jihadis. In Jakarta, Indonesia, there's a magazine called Strategic Review. It is run by a retired Indonesian Army Lieutenant General who was also in Indonesian Army Special Forces. And he ran my he ran my article, Don't Send Brunts, Send Counter-Terrorists," which is on grand strategy on counterterrorism worldwide, right? And in that article, he made sure that my analysis of Moshe de Praia and the threat of floating suicide bombs being launched by the Islamic State is, is you know, he made sure that that got out to the public. And it, it got a little bit of a reaction from a few journalists, but otherwise, you no know, ignorance and apathy. And this is exactly what was before counterterrorism was the most frustrating time, just like now is very frustrating, because in the 1990s, in counterterrorism, European Roma, for instance, were banging on the table, trying to get the attention of the Americans, of the CIA, especially. Al-Qaeda is your number one threat. Al-Qaeda is not only a threat to the United States, and for we as European Ronin, we are acknowledging that threat. We are analyzing that threat. We are looking at the roots of that threat in Saudi Arabia, in the money and the financing that Al Qaeda gets from Saudi Arabia and from the Gulf, right? And, And we were ignored. I, as an American Ronin, was ignored, and those European Ronin were ignored. And then when September 11th happened, we were on the phone with each other. I was in the UAE. And at that time, on that day, I was in Al Ain, near the Oman border. And the European Ronin were in the UAE, too. And they were also in the Strait of Malacca and in Europe. And we were on the phone with each other. And we were all saying the same thing. This is damn sad. It's incredibly tragic. But it doesn't surprise us because we predicted it. And nobody listened.
0: So you've been been aware of the situation for like almost 20 years, even more.
1: Oh, yeah. More than that. Yeah. More than that. With jihadis, with jihadis, more than that. You know, the the terrorists that I was up against in Okinawa on the cigarettes in the rain operation as a Marine, as as an American counter-terrorist on active duty in the Marines. Uh, The terrorists we were up against were not jihadis. They were definitely terrorists. They were Japanese Red Army Brigade. They were allied with the PLO. They were allied with Hezbollah. Their money came out of Bangkok, and we saved 26,000 lives on that operation in the summer of '88. But they were a very, they were a very different kind of terrorist. They didn't, they didn't want to kill people in the name of jihad. They wanted to kill people, and and murder many civilians in the name of the, the liberation of Palestine. Their, their motivations ceased there. They didn't want to conquer the world for jihad. Mm. You know, now they were dangerous, they were a threat, and we took them down and, and Delta Force was on point, thank God. So this So this organization is no more. I I don't think Japanese Red Army brigades exist anymore. Yeah, I, I can't I can't give you a full yes or no answer on that, but as far as I know, that was their last gasp. You no, know, we ended them. We ended them. Um. And it was a great honor. I'll never forget seeing the children cross the bridge the morning after the most difficult uh, part of that operation for me. And I'd been on counter-terrorist guard duty for eight hours in a monsoon rain, um, midnight till eight o'clock in the morning. And the kids, not long after the sun came up, these kids were walking to kindergarten and also to primary school. Most of them were first, second, third graders. A few of them were kindergarten kids. And I just saw them and I had the same feeling that I did in Barcelona. This is what the operation is about. You know, just like in Barcelona, it's about saving that little girl's life. It's about saving her future, right? And and this is what the operation was was about in '88. No I had that same feeling on that day, uh, on the morning the morning of June twentieth, uh, nineteen eighty eight, and the rain had stopped and the sky cleared. It's it's like you know, mano de dios, as Spanish say, hand of God, and these kids are are are. Going, going, walking across the bridge from their small farming village and underneath that bridge as it turned out, there had been a Japanese Red Army Brigade terrorist sniper there all night long and he was trying to kill me but I stayed out of his line of sight because I, I had anticipated if I was a terrorist sniper, if I was any sniper that's where I would be right? only what he didn't know was that there was a ravine close to that guard post and i I violated my orders of guard because i could since we were working working for delta force and with delta force um i was a marine counter-terrorist working on that operation with delta force on point and and i decided i'm going to stay in that ravine and i'm going to stay in that ravine all night long i'm going to crawl in the ravine i'm going to walk the ravine and so on he'll never see me I'm not going to give him a target. If there's a sniper there, I'm not going to give him a target. As it turned out, I was right. I found the cigarettes in the rain that he left. In the morning, I went clean clothes. I put a 45 under my belt, wore a big baggy shirt and faded jeans and just boots, my my jungle boots, and I went off plain clothes on orders from the, the commander of the operation, and I found the evidence that that he was there and that that broke the operation. So looking at, you know, look looking at the jihad, we're in the second jihad. And the academics hate to to deal with this because they want to talk about the need to make the world of Islam feel better about itself. Da da da. Well, I've worked with Muslim counterterrorists Nick in the Strait of Malacca from Malay special branch. I know Muslim counter well. And, and I lived in the Near East for a long time. I was right in the heart of Saudi Arabia for five years. And the large majority of Muslims do not want jihad to prevail. That's, yeah. the, that's the truth. That's, that's the absolute truth. And that means the best thing to do is work with them, listen to them, but also apply tactically tactics are strategy in counterterrorism tactics are strategy in counterterrorism so when when you when you go with full clandestine tactics in strategy in counterterrorism when you remove all us military out of counterterrorism except for, except for delta force because they can go clandestine right and what i'm talking about in the operation to liberate Moshe Boda priya Yes, that would be uniformed U.S. military, but I would bring in everybody that we can. If the if Australian SAS wants to help us, great. If the British SAS wants to help us, great. You know, and it would be uniformed counter terrorist, liberate, motion, board, pride, because it's at this point that's the only way you can do it. No, it's it's not a clandestine operation anymore. Uh, so, meanwhile, tactics and strategy in counterterrorism and. The people who really have the answers on winning against Islamic State and against all jihadis around the world are first and foremost, Muslim counter-terrorists. <clears throat> but they are the exact same people that the Americans refuse to listen to. Yeah. And now, now you can see that the roots of American failure in counterterrorism are so broad and what do the americans keep doing they keep going to generals and admirals for advice on on counterterrorism and strategy on counterterrorism generals and admirals have zero zero first hand experience in counterterrorism that's like going to a bricklayer and saying build me a racing yacht right. why would you go to a bricklayer and right. and tell him i want the blueprints for a a, a racing yacht oh sure the bricklayer's going to take your money and he's going to say i'm going to give you the blueprints for a racing yacht and i'm going to build it for you but it's going to sink because i'm a bricklayer i don't know a thing about building a racing yacht and the americans are so damn ignorant and stupid on counterterrorism at that level they're like well uh, gee uh, well you know if if you build us that that racing yacht and it sinks, my friend, you know we're we're still going to pay you, and uh, and and you're you're going to be fine. And then you just get us a friend of yours who's uh who's another bricklayer or maybe a stonemason, and he'll build the next one for us, and it'll float.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it's the way you described it. It makes a lot of sense now. And mm-hmm. I wish that the U.S. authorities and, and the people in charge could actually see this as well and
1: actually... Well, they're going to see it here. They're going to see it here, brother. You know, yeah, and, and, yeah, and, and as, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, you know, one, one ripple of justice, and I'm paraphrasing here, and I apologize to, to the world for, for not knowing this quotation exactly but martin luther king jr said something to the effect of one ripple of justice creates a wave of even more justice that frees you know an entire sea from injustice and bobby kennedy who's another one of my heroes said something about the same right Bobby Kennedy really understood the need to stand tall for justice and, and, and to be just, you know, and, and, and that means making some hard decisions sometimes, but that is why we're here on this earth, we're we're not here on this earth, we're not here on this earth to, to oppress other people, we're not here on this earth to 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 destroy the souls and the Nelson Mandela understood that completely. We're here on this earth to live and love and be free and to be just and and to and to contribute to the world in the way that speaking as a as a poet and as an artist, in the in the way that all the great poets and artists before us made it possible you and I are standing on the shoulders of giants you know looking at looking at the world in any generation that is true that's true in every generation and that and it's a great honor to be here with you and whether I make a difference now with what I'm saying on your show well the, the, the only other option would be to be silent. And silence is not an option in the face of injustice. Right. No, there, are, there are farmers in Mozambique right now, Black Africans, who, who are in fear for their lives because they have not sworn allegiance to jihad. And they know right now, today, tonight, they know that Islamic State can show up in the middle of the night Islamic State of Mozambique, which is part of Islamic State, which is jihad. They know that Islamic State fighters can show up. Islamic State jihadis will show up at some point, drag them out, and behead them in front of their wives and children. And that is worth fighting for, ending that, ending that injustice, liberating them from even the fear of jihad that's a good fight, you know, fight the good fight. That's a good fight.
0: Absolutely. 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 Hey, Mike, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Um, I hope what you said does make a difference and people do hear it and all the best to you and with your book and everything.
1: Many thanks. Many thanks, brother. It was a great honor to be on the show and the Chieftain Trilogy East River and Tsunami, those three books. So The Great Love Story, Paco and Maria will be up on Amazon September 22nd.
0: Cool, I'll put a link for those books um, on the description below. Thanks,
1: many thanks, Nick.
0: Cool, man. Cheers. Uh,
1: Have a good day. Okay, cheers to you, my brother. Thank You have a rap career. Thank
0: you so much.